0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. And looking at the time that we have this morning, I'm going to give a caveat, though I would like to say we're going to go for two hours this morning, so hold on to your seats. Uh, Instead, I'm going to say my guess is we will not be able to get through everything this morning. I typically have... Seven pages rounded out of notes that I go through, and today I have ten. So I don't think we'll get through all of it. Um, The reason why there is so much in this little section that seems so uh, pointless, you know, we read through it, and it just seems like, okay, that's the deal. He's content. We need to be too. Great. As you take it and you kind of spin it around as a diamond, you see all of the different Um, entryways of light and the way that the light's reflecting and you start to see there are things that are taught in this passage and there are things that are caught in this passage there are things that are explicitly stated to us of this is what we must do and then there are things that are modeled for us and i want to look at the certain things that are taught and explicitly stated but i really am the main thrust of this passage is what is modeled for us by paul and what is modeled for us is amazing so i want to take some time to go through it we'll see how far we get this morning but if we're going slowly and you're afraid we're not going to get through the whole passage don't worry we might come back next week and finish this section paul is writing in philippians chapter 4 verses 10 through 20 Really, not necessarily a theology of contentment, though we did that two weeks ago. I wanted to make sure that we had an understanding of what contentment was, and really we looked at what contentment is not. We looked at what discontentment is, what the root of discontentment is, and the root of discontentment is lust and coveting, and that's what we spent our time two weeks ago looking at. But I just want to remind you, this section of scripture isn't a theology of contentment, though we're going to see it modeled for us. Mainly, it is Paul just trying to be very careful to make sure he isn't giving an impression that would say he's preaching the gospel to gain people's money. He had been accused of that in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, 1 Thessalonians 2, Acts 20. He had to defend himself over and over again. And so here, and you remember we looked at this two weeks ago. He says, I'm rejoicing, verse 10, in the Lord greatly, that now at last you revived your concern for me. Thank you so much for giving to me. But he says twice, verse 11 and then also down in the rest of the passage. Verse 11, he says, not that I speak from want. Um, Thank you, but. That's what he keeps saying. Thank you, but. Thank you for your gift. But I just want to let you know I wasn't discontent. If you hadn't sent me the gift, I would still be okay. It's thank you, but just make sure I'm, I'm content. I'm not grumbling or complaining. I'm not speaking from want. And then he does it again in verse 17. Thank you, but verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself. Thank you for the gift, but it wasn't that I was seeking this gift. It's not that I'm doing this to gain money. Thank you, but I didn't need it. And that's really what he says in those two places. Thank you, but in verse 11, thank you, but I'm not discontent. Please know I'm not discontent. I'm content in whatever circumstances I am in, so thank you. And then verse 17, thank you, but really the reason why I'm so grateful for this gift is not because of the gift itself to me. I'm grateful because in you giving the gift, you get a greater reward. That's what I'm most excited about. So he's just trying to deflect these things. He's trying to make sure that they understand, and anybody reading the letter would understand, I'm not discontent, I'm really seeking your greatest blessing. That's the point of this section. So two weeks ago we looked at knowing that's the point, um, authorial intent as we've been talking about in Family Bible, I believe that's the point. I think that Paul's just saying, thank you letter, thank you but making sure, and, and here's the point, and here's what I'm asking for, and here's what I'm excited about. But inside of it, we see him modeling for us contentment. So I wanted to take some time on it last two weeks ago. And it's one of the uh, greatest as far as feedback is concerned from you. That it's good that we kind of sat down and hunkered on that topic, uh, because I believe it's something that we're always going to struggle with contentment, always wanting more and not being content. But by God's grace, I believe the word of God resonated in our hearts together as a church two weeks ago. To really see the two roots of discontentment. Those two roots, as we talked about two weeks ago, were lust. Lust is just a strong desire, it's the longing of the soul for what will give it delight, it's a craving. Remember, lust isn't bad. We often think of lust just in sexual immorality. Lust isn't bad. Jesus lusted to eat the Passover with his disciples. Paul lusted to be home with Jesus and be away from this world. Lust itself isn't bad. Lust is just a craving. What makes lust bad is when it's attached to something immoral. So lust is what brings about discontentment. Craving something that you are not having. And then coveting is the other root of discontentment coveting is literally just to want to have more we talked about contentment makes poor men rich and discontentment or coveting makes rich men poor ultimately to be covetous is to be dissatisfied with what god has given to us and ultimately it's to be dissatisfied with god himself and so we gave it this definition two weeks ago for covetousness Covetousness is craving something so much that you lose your contentment in God. You lose your contentment in God. So the opposite of coveting is contentment in God. And that brings us to this morning. I want to go through just carefully, slowly, go through these verses. And I believe that there are three things that we can ask about this passage. And we'll see these answered for us. And there's a lot here. And that's why we might have to slow down. We might have to make this a two-parter. Three questions that I believe are answered in this text. Number one, question number one, what is contentment? What is contentment? Number two, what does contentment look like? And that's where I believe Paul models what contentment looks like for us. And then number three, so what? How can we learn to be content? How can we learn to be content? What is contentment? What does it look like? And how can we learn? How do we learn to apply contentment to our own lives? Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 8, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content, or we should be, or we must be. We must be content. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have be content don't that coveting is wanting more be content with what you have paul in second corinthians 12 verse 10 said that he was well content in weaknesses with insults with distresses with persecutions with difficulties for christ's sake because he knew what he wrote to timothy in first timothy 6 6 is true godliness produces those Or godliness is produced by those trials, and it's a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. The Bible as a whole, as we looked at two weeks ago, identifies contentment as a virtue because it's saying that discontentment, coveting, lusting is wrong. Contentment is a virtue, and it's also a command that God gives his children As one commentator says, he says it this way, and I think it's helpful. Paul, in this period of his life, in jail, jumping into the historicity of what's going on here, the historical aspect of where Paul is, why he's writing, what's happening. Paul was, quote, deprived of every comfort and cast as a lonely man on the shores of the great strange metropolis with every movement of his hands clanking a fetter and nothing before him but the lion's mouth or the sword. And yet there in his cell, he is able to say, I'm content. Chained to a Roman guard under house arrest, he's able to say, I am content. I am content in whatever circumstance I am in. So what is contentment? What is contentment? Well, number one, we see very clearly, and I love this, Verse 10, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I've learned. Meaning what? He was not born with it. Uh, If we have more time, Romans 7 is where we'd go. You can just write it in your notes. Romans 7 tells us that Paul was covetous of everything. He coveted everything. And that was one of the biggest things that stood out to him, that the law told him, thou shalt not covet. And he realized I'm a sinner because I covet everything. I covet everything. So he started off, as we all do, coveting everything. And yet he learned it. So contentment can be learned. Contentment can and it must, if we are believers, be learned. And it's learned over a long period of time. This isn't go to bed with the word contentment scribbled on a piece of paper, folded up and put under your pillow. And in the morning you wake up, boom, I'm content. Contentment is learned over a long period of time. What is it? He says in verse 11, I am content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. I know how to live in all these things because I have learned Middle of verse 12, the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What is contentment? We could define it this way. Very simply, I'm going to give you a couple different definitions. Some of them you will be able to write down. Some of them will be too long because they were given to us by Puritans and they just were very long-winded. So you'll just have to listen to the uh, tape over and over again to write them down. But one very short, simple definition for contentment that you can write down is this. It's to have enough. Contentment is simply to say, I have enough. It's deeper than that because it's not just I have enough materially. It's saying I have enough in God. I am satisfied in God. I have enough in God. And in God, as Paul's going to say, we have all of the riches that we need. God has supplied all of our riches and all of our needs have been met through him. Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, an English Puritan pastor in the 1600s, wrote a book that I would recommend to you. It's a little bit weighty, but you can get through it. uh, Like one of those little Puritan paperbacks, very helpful. You can go slowly through it, maybe in devotions. It's a little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he defines contentment as this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I told you it's long-winded. That's a long definition. Let me read it one more time. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which, and listen to what he says contentment produces, what it does. It freely submits to, so it's not kicking against, freely submits to, and delights in, so it's not only not kicking against, it's not that it's just indifferent. I won't, I won't kick against God's providence. It's delighting in the fact that he's provident. And so delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Or to say it another way, it is delighting in and submitting to God's providence in your life. So contentment is delighting in and submitting to God's providence in your life. Another definition Contentment is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot, whatever it may be. Contentment is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot. So his desires don't step outside of his lot, what he owns, what he has, what makes up him or her. You're not saying, I wish I had this, but I don't. Whatever I have, I, I delight in. I'm fine with that. Whatever those circumstances may be. In other words, you never crave more than you have. Now, just a side note here. Does this mean that we shouldn't work hard to make money, uh, to give it away? Does it mean that we should just say, you know what, I'm poor and I'm going to stay poor and I'm not going to do anything. Um, don't have a job. So I got to learn to be content. This is where we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture, right? We need to understand, no, no, you, you need to work hard. You need to provide for your family. If you don't provide for your family and you are a believer, uh, Paul tells Timothy you're even worse than an unbeliever because unbelievers provide for the family. They are trying to do that. So contentment is not equated with laziness. doesn't mean that you can't have desires, but here's the key. If you're saying I want a job to be able to provide for my family. I want this to be able to take care of that. If you're asking those questions and desiring those things, here's the key. If you don't get those things as you're working towards them, what is your attitude? If your attitude is, well, I didn't get it, and so my life is miserable, and God must not be good, and I'm not happy, then we know it's crossed into discontentment. If you're able to say, you know what, I didn't get it now, it's a no from God now, but I'm going to keep working, I'm going to keep trying, I'm going to keep looking. If your contentment is not in your things, but you're, you're trying to gain things to provide for other people, take care of your family, then it's okay. It's not, I just want to make that clear because I think a lot of these things that we're going through, as I say them, it it could sound like, well, I, I can never desire a raise. No, no, you can. But what, what are you desiring about the raise? One of the passages we'll look at in Hebrews, if you're desiring money to keep you safe and secure, then you're coveting you're lusting because money does not keep you safe and secure and that's why the author of hebrews says no no, no. we ha- are satisfied in god because god never changes and never goes away so you can desire the raise all you want as long as you're not placing your trust in it as long as you're not saying i, I want to be the one with the most toys at the end of my life because all i care about is gaining riches here on earth make make more make millions give them away be content so just that's an aside that I just want to make sure is clear. Probably it's not clear, but I want to. Make, if you have questions on about it, let me know. So contentment is delighting in and submitting to God's providence in your life. It is. It's saying God is good even when I'm struggling, even when the circumstances are hard. God is good. That's what contentment is, and that's all that is taught in this passage. And even those. Definitions we have to kind of fill out with other passages. This passage is not about teaching. It's about catching the model that Paul gives to us. So that's the second question. What does contentment look like? It looks like delighting in and submitting to God's providence. It's saying, I have enough. God has provided. God will always provide. I'm okay. And I will be happy and satisfied in God and not in the things that he gives. What does it look like practically? Number two. Question number two. What does it look like practically and this is where Paul will model for us five different aspects of what it looks like to be content. Five different ways that contentment shows itself as we walk through these verses. Number one. So five, five different ways when we ask the question, what does this look like? It looks like five different things as Paul models it for us, okay? Number one. A contented person is confident in God's providence. A contented person is is confident in God's providence. We already said that being content is delighting in and submitting to God's providence, but I want to show you this in in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. So it's been about 10 years since Paul's ministry had begun in the church in Philippi. It's been about 10 years since he, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, had happened. It's been, give or take, a couple years, about 10 years removed from that. After Paul ministered in Philippi, he went to Thessalonica, he went to Berea, and the Philippians kept on supporting him. Immediately, he went to Thessalonica, they supported him. No one else did. We read about that. Berea, they supported him. No one else did. They kept on some supporting And maybe Paul was getting used to that support, knowing, hey, here's some constant support. As a missionary, I'm going out. They're helping me. They're funding certain things that I'm doing. And all of a sudden, it stopped. The support stopped. And he says, not why it stopped, but he tells us how it stopped. They lacked an opportunity. We don't know explicitly what that means. Maybe they ran out of money. Maybe they couldn't figure out where Paul was. Maybe they couldn't get somebody to go to Paul. Remember, Epaphroditus got sick. Maybe they said, wait, hang on, we're going to wait. And then we'll send him. He still got sick as he was sent out. What are we going to do? How are we going to get this? We don't know explicitly why they lacked an opportunity. But the bottom line is Paul was not getting his funds. We know where Paul is as he's writing this. He is in jail. He is arrested. He is waiting his trial and, and a possible execution. We know he's released, but he'll be captured again and beheaded. And we know that back in, the, in this time period, in the New Testament time period, you didn't get everything given to you. You weren't provided for in jail. You had to provide for yourself, which is awfully hard to do because you can't get a job as you're chained to Roman guards. So people around you had to support you and take care of you. Family members would come, would give you food, would give you clothing as your clothing was wearing out. And so Paul is in jail and he is lacking physical provisions and he's waiting upon the, the Philippians. He knows they've given money before and there's no money coming in, but he's confident in God's providence. Hey, whenever God's going to bring it, God's going to bring it. And I'm not going to grumble as he tells the Philippians. I'm not going to be anxious for anything. I'm going to give thanks as I'm waiting. I'm going to give thanks as I'm waiting, whatever the reason that they lacked the opportunity It's unclear, but God, in his perfect timing, would provide, and Paul knew that. Paul knew that. Those who seek to control their own lives will inevitably be frustrated. A confident trust in God's providence is foundational to contentment. You have to trust God is in control, he is good, and he will take care of me. You have to trust that. That's modeled for us in verse 10. Hey, you lacked it, but I'm okay. I'm not freaking out. I'm not anxious. I'm not grumbling. I'm not complaining. And that's why he says in verse 11, it's not that I speak from want. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. This is number two. Modeled for us by Paul, a contented person is satisfied with little, A contented person, number two, is satisfied with little. Not only are they delighting in and confident in God's providence, but they're satisfied with little. He says, I'm not wanting because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I I know how to do this, and I don't have much. What circumstance is he in? I just described it. He's in jail. He is lacking provisions. He is awaiting a potential execution, and he says, I'm okay. I'm okay. That's why he says, the reason I don't need your money is I'm content. I can go without your money and be fine. I can die and I will be content. It's okay. A contented person is satisfied with little. One writer says it this way It didn't matter that he was a prisoner living in a small apartment, chained to a Roman soldier, subsisting on a sparse diet. None of that affected his contentment because he was satisfied with what little he had. His contentment was not affected by his physical deprivations it's okay you can even take my life but i will be content number three modeled for us in verse 12 paul models that a contented person is not dependent on his circumstances contented person is not dependent upon his circumstances your contentment does not uh, matter Uh, your your circumstances don't make your contentment work or not it's not equated with Uh, Your circumstances you can be content regardless of your circumstances In fact, your circumstances have to be bad in order for you to prove your contentment Paul knew this You remember paul on the road to damascus. He was Saul back then Comes to faith in jesus christ. God says i'm going to turn you persecutor of the church to one of us converts him And from there on you remember what jesus said told um, ananias right you must go you must help him he's blind and you must teach him what all that he must suffer for my name's sake paul knew suffering's coming and it didn't take long (laughs) acts chapter 9 verses 22 through 25 the jews says this the jews plotted together to do away with him this is right after damascus but their plot became known to paul They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. We're just a couple weeks removed from his conversion and people already want him dead. So you remember his disciples took him, put him in a basket, let him down in the opening of the wall, and he was free. Lystra, on his first missionary journey, uh, in Acts chapter 14 verse 19, says this, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 24, says this. The crowd rose up together against them. This is after Lystra. The chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded uh, to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's in Philippi. After Philippi, he is released. Earthquake, you remember? Released, gets out, goes to Thessalonica. Maybe things will get better for this poor old man. And just It's constant bad things happening. Maybe Thessalonica will receive him a little bit better. Well... Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 10, reads this. The Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring uh, bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd. The city authorities heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Constantly in trouble. I could go on and on. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine more passages that detail Paul's incredibly challenging life. Why do I say all that? Because he knew Bad circumstances. He knew suffering, unlike anything that we know. And he said, In whatever circumstance I am in, I am content. I've learned that. I've learned that. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 10 verses, verses 23 through 33, that just detail all of the things that Paul went through. Listen to just some of it. I had far more imprisonments. I was beaten times without number. I was often in danger. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's what Jesus received once before he died. Paul received it five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Three times I have been shipwrecked. I think after two times being with Paul and being shipwrecked, I think the third time that Paul tells me, hey, I'm going to go on a boat and go on a journey. I think I'm walking because it's not boating well for us. I've been on frequent journeys. I've been in danger from the rivers. Even the rivers are trying to get him. Dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the seas, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in order, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. So he sums it all up by saying this. Who is weak without me being weak? You think you have weakness and difficulties? I far more. I far more. When you are struggling, I'm struggling with you, for you. I feel your pain. I'm suffering with you. And yet he's content in all of it. How? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Because momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. With that perspective, it truly is no wonder why... There was no amount of pain, no amount of suffering, no amount of disappointment that could affect Paul. He's saying, bring it on because it's producing in me and for me an eternal weight of glory. It's not tied to your circumstances. In fact, when your circumstances get worse, that's when you really see if you truly are content or not. Number four, modeled for us in verse 13, a contented person is strengthened by divine power. By divine power. So he says, I'm going through all these circumstances in abundance, in need, in want, in prosperity. I can do it all. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we all know this verse is abused. This verse is always, no matter what team I was on playing baseball at a Christian league, this verse was always our theme verse. And I remember one very poignant moment for me as a left-handed uh, batter, I'm in the batter's box. Count is full, bases are loaded. It's just your typical thing, right? It's what everybody dreams about. Two outs, bases loaded. We're down. If I just get a base hit, we're going to win the game. And over on the fence, as I'm looking out, I'm standing there ready to hit. Over on the fence, it says Philippians 4:13. I can do all things who strengthens, th- who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I'm thinking, okay. I step out of the batter's box. I pray God help me. <laughs> I need to hit. I need a base hit. You know I'm not asking for much. Just a base hit. Not a home run, not a double, not a triple. Base hit. Step inside confident. I can do anything. (laughs) Whiff. Strikeout. Let the team down. Go cry in the dugout. And that verse means nothing to me anymore. Wait, I can do all things. It told me. Jesus, give me strength. I can do it. You know that verse doesn't mean that. You know that verse doesn't mean that because, as we've been talking about in Family Bible Hour, hermeneutically, our hermeneutics, our principles of interpretation, our lens, we have a fourfold filter with which we study the Bible. You have to study it literally. You have to study it in context. You have to study it historically and grammatically. Here, grammatically and contextually, we see all things doesn't mean anything if you go back the verses before i know how along, verse verse 12 i know how to get along with humble means i also know how to live in prosperity so he's kind of the two sides of the spectrum here humble prosperous and then he says this in any and every circumstance unfortunately my bible has this separated from the others it's on a different page if it's all on the same page for you i would circle that in any and every circumstance I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I've learned in any circumstance to be able to be content, in other words. No matter what circumstance I'm in, I can be content. That any and every circumstance, that is the all things. In any and every circumstance, in verse 13, I can do all things. I can be content. I can live in any and every circumstance that God might give to me because Jesus is the one strengthening me. I can't do it, but I can through the power of God. Of Christ, I can't live this out because it's supernatural obedience. I can't do it on my own. But Jesus does it through me. He strengthens me. So all things doesn't mean I can hit a home run if I pray hard enough. I can make a million dollars if I ask the Lord. That's not what this is saying. It's saying if we can, you know, just kind of put it into the Patrick translation. I can be content. In every and any circumstance I am in, through Jesus who strengthens me. I can't do it on my own. I can do it through him. That's what that verse means. I think the best example of this verse is found in, or living out of this verse, is found in Second Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know this section. Second Corinthians chapter 12. This is the thorn in the flesh section. If you drop down to verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He's saying that he could struggle with boasting. He could struggle with exalting himself because of what Jesus has allowed him to see, being caught up into heaven. So he says in verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that I saw heaven, I saw all these things, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself... There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself. Now, we don't know what that messenger of Satan was. It could have been physical. It could have been a person. My guess is it was a person because messenger is never speaking of a thing uh, like blindness. Some people say it's blindness. It could be. Um, but messenger is always speaking about a person or an angel or, a, or some active involving person. It's, it's somebody doing something. But regardless of that, we know the point. It was to humble him. It was to keep him humble. So verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave. Please get it away. I don't want this thing here anymore. Whatever it might be. And I personally enjoy that it isn't specified for us because you and I have thorns in the flesh all the time. If it had said uh, a false teacher from the Judaizers. You and I would say, well, I I don't understand what that looks like, what that feels like. That doesn't apply to me. I don't have Judaizers that are false teachers trying to condemn me. But when he says there was something that was really annoying, painful, I was suffering through it. It made me distraught. I was struggling. Oh, we can all identify with that. We can all identify with that. What's his response? God's response to Paul pleading with him three times, take it away. Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? My grace is sufficient because power is perfected in weakness. When you are weak, you can see the Lord's strength living itself out in you. You want to be weak because then you can see Jesus working through you, in you, and through you. So Paul says that, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell with, within me. It may dwell in me. Therefore, verse 10, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and then all of those different things you could throw in there, all of those places that he's suffering. I am content. Why? Because a contented person knows. They know without a shadow of a doubt, I cannot live this out on my own. We, can't, we cannot be content on our own. But through Jesus, I can be content in any and every circumstance I am in. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3 as well. Verses 14 through 16 and verse 20, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And this is his prayer, that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And so he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. We can be content in any and every circumstance. It's modeled for us by Paul. We can do it because Jesus is working his power through us, through the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah Burroughs, again, in his book, The Rare uh, Jewel of Christian Contentment, says this. A Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance by getting strength from another By going out of himself to Jesus Christ, by his faith acting upon Christ, and bringing the strength of Jesus Christ into his own soul. He is thereby enabled to bear whatever God lays on him by the strength that he finds from Jesus Christ. There is strength in Christ not only to sanctify and save us, but strength to support us under all of our burdens and afflictions, And Christ expects that when we are under any burden, we should act our faith upon him to draw virtue and strength from him. We must do that. When you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of trial, it's easy to say, okay, how can we get out of this? How can we do this? And rely upon ourselves And Jeremiah Burroughs says the same thing that Paul says. You can't do it on your own strength. You must have Jesus working through you. So if you are suffering, if you are going through a trial, if you are struggling with anything, is your first response to say, God, please help me and sustain me? Or is it to say, okay, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to live through this? We see Paul modeling for us that we must rely upon the Holy Spirit, rely upon Jesus and his power To live this obedience out. And fifthly, lastly, a contented person is preoccupied with the well-being of others. A contented person is preoccupied with the well-being of others. So he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, verse 13. But I love this. He starts verse 14 by saying, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction why because right about now the philippians as they're reading this hey thanks but i didn't need it hey thanks but i could have done without it hey thanks but really it wasn't that big of a deal i'm content in whatever i'm going through the philippian church is going why did we give him our money why did we do this he didn't need it we shouldn't have given it to him we lacked an opportunity we were praying we finally got it and we gave it away and he didn't even need it that's why verse 14 is so practical no no, no guys you did well literally in the greek it's it's you've done good you've done good philippians You've done good. Why? Because you have shared with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, verse 15, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. It was continual. It wasn't just, hey, here's a one-time gift, be warm and be filled You kept on giving to my needs, but then verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. What is he saying? He's saying, even in you giving money to me to support me and provide for my needs, I'm more concerned about your needs being taken care of. I'm more concerned about your eternal rewards being amassed in heaven if there was ever a rightful time to be justified in saying hey can we think about me for a second would have been here would have been Paul saying guys I could die any second now I could die any day the order could come in execute him let's just focus on me let's let's cry a little bit let's sing songs about how awesome I was I'll die and then you go back to live in your life but no Paul says I, I don't care about me I'm content I care about you A contented person is always going to be preoccupied with the well-being of others. They will give to others. They will take care of other people's needs. They're not going to be looking to their own needs and saying, how can I deal with this first? And that's why Paul says, I am so excited that, verse 18, I received everything in full. I have it all, and I have an abundance because of what you've given to me. It's not just a little. You've given me an abundance. Abundance. And I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. What is it? What did they send? They send money? Did they send food, clothing? What did they send? We don't know exactly, but it says ultimately what it looks like to our God. It's a fragrant aroma, number one. It's an acceptable sacrifice, number two. And it's well-pleasing, number three, to God. This is all language of the temple, the tabernacle. This is a burnt sacrifice, a, a burnt um, Uh, animal that was slain that was sacrificed and burning and it's a sweet smelling aroma it's just steak in the nostrils of our god a fragrant aroma um, beautiful sweet smelling incense going up to the lord like our prayers um, that the bible says are sweet smelling aroma it's an acceptable sacrifice this was something that god would say yes this is worship to me and it's well pleasing to god And then verse 19, he says this. So he says, you have just stored up riches for yourself in heaven by giving money to me. And it was glorifying to the Lord because it was three aspects of an amazing sacrifice to God. And then he says this, and I love this. Verse 19, and my God will supply. Okay, whose needs has he been talking about? i been talking about his needs. I have needs. But he doesn't care about his needs. He says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all your needs. How do I know that? Because he's supplying all of my needs and he's promised to do so. He'll take care of all of your needs. Jesus said that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. God will take care of you. Food and clothing, it will be there. God will supply. And what is the extent to which God will supply your needs? The riches. That Jesus has in glory. Heaven and all that it contains is yours. God will provide according to the extent of his riches and they are immeasurable. That's why Paul says now because of that and looking into the future to our God and father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He'll provide for everything that you need. You will lack nothing. What is contentment? It's resting and being satisfied in the providence that God gives, in God's sovereign care, and saying, my circumstances, whatever they might be, I'm fine because I'm satisfied in God. And we've seen modeled for us five different aspects um, that Paul lives out of what it looks like to be content. What does it look like to be content? It looks like saying, you know what, circumstances, it's not dependent on circumstances. They can be good, they can be bad, no matter what. God is good, and he's in control, and I will be satisfied in him alone. A contented person looks outside of themselves and says, you know what? God will take care of me, and God will take care of you, and maybe I can help you and, and provide for you and encourage you. A contented person says, you know what? I'm confident that God will provide. And I love that. In verse 19, I'm confident that God will provide. All of these things lead to the question, so how do we live this out? How do we practically apply these truths that are both taught and caught for us this morning? And that's where we're going to have to stop because next week we have to look at this question. What do we do? How do we live this out? How do we do this? I'm going to try and give you four practical steps of living these things out. What can we do today to look more like Paul and live out contentment? We'll talk about that next week and answer that third question for our souls. Would you stand with me as we sing a, a song that's become the theme for us in our little study through these verses. It's a prayer, it's a, it's a hope, it's a trust. And ultimately it is saying, God, you are the one that needs to be my all in all. Be my vision, be my wisdom. I don't need riches, I don't need man's praise. You are my inheritance and I will be satisfied in you Despite my circumstances, no matter my circumstance, I will be satisfied in you. Let's sing it together. Be thou my.